Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Sam Lipsight, and I'll be reading from my novel, The Ask. Chapter 1. America, said Horace, the office temp, was a run-down and demented pimp. Our republic's whoremaster days were through. Whither that frost-nerved, diamond-fanged hustler who'd stormed Normandy, dick-smacked the Soviets, turned out such firm, emerging market flesh. Now our nation slumped in the corner of the pool hall, some gummy coot with a pint of mad dog and soggy yellow eyes, just another mark for the juvenile wolves. We're the bitches of the first world, said Horace, his own eyes braziers of delight. We all loved Horace, his clownish pronouncements. He was a white kid from Armonk who had learned to speak and feel from a half-dozen VHS tapes in his father's garage. Besides, here at our desks with our turkey wraps, I did not disagree. But I let him have it. It was my duty. We were in what they call a university setting, a bastion of etc. Little did I know this was my last normal day at said bastion, that my old friend Purdy was about to butt back into my world, mangle it. I just figured this was what my worst teachers used to call a teachable moment. Horace, I said, that's a pretty sexist way to frame a discussion of America's decline, don't you think? Not to mention racist. I didn't mention anybody's race, said Horace. You didn't have to. PC robot, said Horace. Fascist dupe, I said. Did you get avocado on yours, said Horace? Fattening, I said. Don't worry, baby, said Horace. I like big women. What about hairy ones, I said, parted my shirt to air my nipple fuzz. Horace let me be a cretin with him. You could call him my infantilism provider, though you'd sound like an idiot. Otherwise, I was ostensibly upstanding, a bald husband, a slab-bellied father. Gentlemen, said our supervisor, Vargina, coming out from her command nook. Did you send off those emails about the Belgian art exchange? Horace swiveled back to his monitor with the mock panic of a sitcom surf. Vargina took scant notice of our talk, tolerated foul banter for the purposes of morale. But the fact remained, we had forgotten the afternoon's assignment. The gods of task flow did not easily forgive. Where we worked was in the development office of a mediocre university in New York City. It was an expensive and strangely obscure institution, named for its syphilitic Whig founder, but we often called it, with what we considered a certain panache, the mediocre university at New York City. By we, I mean Horace and I. By often, I mean once. Our group raised funds and materials for the university's arts programs. People paid vast sums so their spawn could take hard drugs in suitable company, draw from life on their laptops, do radical things with video cameras and caulk. Still, the sums didn't quite do the trick, not in the cutthroat world of arts education. 
Our job was to grovel for more money. We could always use more video cameras, more caulk, or a dance studio, or a gala for more groveling. The Asks liked galas, openings, recitals, shows. They liked dinner with a famous filmmaker for them to fawn over or else dismiss as frivolous. An Ask could be a person or what we wanted from that person. If they gave it to us, that was a give. The Asks knew little about the student work they funded. Who could blame them? Some of the art these brats produced wouldn't stand up to the dreck my three-year-old demanded we tack to the kitchen wall. But I was biased, and not just because I often loved my son. Thing was, I'd been just like these wretches once. Now they stared through me, as though I were merely some drone in their sightline, a pathetic object momentarily obstructing their fabulous horizon. They were right. That's exactly what I was. Now, at the beginning of Chapter 2, our narrator, Milo Burke, has lost the job that he described, and he is looking for work. You could say I had experienced some technical difficulties. There had been bad times. Years trickled off at jobs that purported to yield what superiors called, with true sadism, opportunities. These yielded nothing, unless you considered bong slavery, a few bogus spiritual awakenings, and the unswerving belief I could run a small business from my home, opportune. Still, before my outburst at the bastion, I had made great strides. No more did I pine aloud for that time in the past when I had a future. Yes, I still painted on occasion, or at least stood at the easel and watched my brush hand twitch. It made for an odd, jerky style I hoped would get noticed some day. I never confessed this last part to my wife, Mora. Our intimacy was largely civic. We spoke at length about our shared revulsion for the almost briny-scented, poop-flecked plunger under the bathroom sink, and also of a mutual desire to cut down on paper towels. But we never broached topics like hopes or dreams. Hopes were stupid. Dreams required quarantine. Still, Mora was a devoted mother, which, even if that often amounted to being helplessly present for the ongoing thwarting of a child's heart, meant something. Bernie was a beautiful boy. Good thing, too, as he'd become an expensive hobby. Preschool, pre-clothing for the preschool. Then there were the hidden costs, like food. Funny, isn't it, how much you can detest the very being you'd die for in an instant— I guess that's just families, or human nature, or capitalism or something. But the price of Bernie wasn't Bernie's fault. It wasn't Mora's either. I was the fool who let the starveling have it, who couldn't find another job, though I came close at a few places. The interviewers could maybe tell I had the old brain. Jobs weren't about experience anymore, just wiring. Also, my salary demands might have been high. I lost out to kids who lived on hummus and a misapprehension of history. The bright newbies bosses exploit without compunction because these youngsters are, in fact, undercover aristocrats mingling with the peasantry. Each stint entered on their resumes another line in the long poem of their riskless youth. Not that I resented them. Besides, there really wasn't work for anyone. The whole work thing was over. 
I'd grown morose, detached, faintly palsied. I stopped reading the job listings, just rode the trains each day, simmering, until dinner time. Back in high school, I remembered, a soothing way to fall asleep had been to conjure the crimson blossom of bullet-ripped concert tees, the hot suck and pour of flamethrower flame over pep-rally bleachers. Typical teen-shooter fluff, though I worried I'd inherited my grandmother's nutcake gene. I was fairly popular. Why did I slave her for slaughter? The visions had stopped in college. Some huge and dainty hand peeled them off my skull walls. I became a painter, at least at parties. I was happy for a time. But now, riding the trains, or else home sitting with the bills, the old, terrible feeling returned. Whenever I checked my bank balance, the terrible feeling welled up in me. The goddamn asks. I'd sweep them with a Maxim gun or some other wipeout device whose history I learned of late at night on the war channels, a glass of old overholt rye on my knee. I was not bad off compared to most of the world. Why didn't anybody do anything? We could get a few billion of us together, rush the bastards. Sure, a good many of us would die, but unless the asks popped off some nukes, eventually they'd get overrun. What was the holdup? The terrible feeling tended to hover for a day or so, fade. Then I'd fantasize about winning the lottery, or inheriting vast fortunes. Sometimes I was a flamboyant libertine with plush orgy rooms, personal zoos. Sometimes I jetted around the world building hospitals or making documentaries about the poor. It all depended on my mood. Days I didn't ride the trains, I'd take long walks in the neighborhood. We lived in Astoria, Queens, as close to our jobs in Manhattan as we could afford. One afternoon I made a mission for myself. Stamps for the latest bills. I'd ask for American flags, stick them on upside down in protest against our nation's foreign and domestic policies, paper towels, and, as a special treat to celebrate the acceleration of my fatal spiral, a small sack of overpriced cashews from the Greek market. I'd cure my solipsistic hysteria with a noonday jaunt, sights and smells, school kids in parochial plaids, grizzled men grilling meat, the deaf woman handing out flyers for the nail salon, or the other deaf woman with swollen hands and a headscarf who hawked medical thrillers in front of the drugstore. This was a kind and bountiful neighborhood, the Korean grocery, the Mexican taqueria, the Italian butcher shop, the Albanian cafe, the Arab newsstand, the Czech beer garden, everybody living in provisional harmony, keeping their hateful thoughts to themselves, except maybe a few of the Czechs. A man who looked a bit like me, same eyewear, same order of sneaker, charged past. They were infiltrating, the freaking me's. The me's were going to wreck everything, hike rents, demand better salads. The me's were going to drive me away. The Greeks were out of cashews. I bought pistachios, ate them in line at the post office, or online at the post office. I could no longer recall which phrase came naturally. Either way, there was always a line at the post office, people with enormous packages bound, I assumed, for family in distant, historically fucked lands. What were they sending? TVs? TiVos? Hamburgers? Hamburger Helper? The exporting of American culture, did it continue at this level, too? 
It couldn't for much longer, not according to Horace's calculations. The line hardly moved. People couldn't fill out the forms. Others did not comprehend the notion of money orders. Come on, people, I thought, beamed. I'm on your side and I'm annoyed. Doesn't that concern you? Don't you worry your behavior will reduce me to generalizations about why your lands are historically fucked? Or does my nation's decline make my myopia moot? They should produce a reality show about how much this line sucks, I thought. Call it on the line, or in the line. A half hour later, I reached the teller. I was about to ask for stamps when I realized I already had a book of them in my wallet. I did not need stamps. I needed a job. I needed to cool it with those pills from Mora's root canal. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. 